topic uh, is essentially letting go of control a little in life and learning how to put aside the issues, challenges, dramas that are unresolvable, that we cannot fix. In uh, early Buddhism, the word chaitana meant willpower or control or volition, the things that uh, the mind's capability to plan, solve, figure out, and then take action. And of course, willpower in conjunction with the rational, abstract, logical faculties gives us human beings profound tools. What we can do, courtesy of the circuits of the left hemisphere, is we can, with uh, the left lateral prefrontal, we can, uh, and also broken Wernicke's region, regions, we can represent the world as words and symbols. And using that and the medial prefrontal, we can work through logical ideas of how to set goals, how to change uh, certain uh, situations in our life. We can solve problems. And we can use our narrative capabilities to keep track of how we're moving towards our goals. So we might have a goal to go back to school, to leave a job, to move into a different area of the world, to uh, achieve something in the arts. And we can, of course, visualize uh, or create a representation of that goal, we can hold it in mind, and then we can, to a certain degree, in abstract thought, we can represent the different steps we'd have to take to move from where we are to that envisioned destination. It's a faculty that is deeply celebrated in our culture. Uh, we have movies, novels, uh, unending narratives about people who face seemingly insurmountable challenges and through cunning and through determination and most of all through inventiveness somehow manage to uh, overcome the hindrances and challenges of life. Part of the quality of the left hemisphere is that it its fuel, its gasoline, as it were, is dopamine. And dopamine is a neurotransmitter that makes us feel very powerful. In essence, it's a neurotransmitter that allows us, not only does it provide feelings of reward, but it's a neurotransmitter that makes it seem that we can accomplish anything. When people have right hemispheric strokes and lose uh, a lot of the emotional circuitry of the right hemisphere, they become wildly optimistic, over-optimistic. They believe that there's nothing that they can't achieve. In many ways, it's similar to the bipolar manic stage where somebody believes they've figured out and solved the mysteries 
of the universe and they frantically write and they believe that they've got it all solved and worked through. So the left hemisphere's use of dopamine unfortunately creates cycles as we wear out our dopamine supplies uh, very often we rely on secondary uh, neurotransmitters and hormones such as cortisol and adrenaline to keep recharging ourselves to try to figure out, solve, put out fires in life and so forth. To keep us focused on our goals and problem solving, working it out, figuring it out, solving, uh, the left hemisphere tends to also have control of spotlight attention. And to that degree, it also uses acetylcholine, which means it can hold and focus the spotlight, like, like a theater-like spotlight, on one set of tasks at the detriment of everything else. So while we're in the problem-solving circuitry, we tend to be unaware of physical, emotional, embodied sensations, courtesy of the insula right hemisphere. Um, and we rely on these abilities, certainly throughout some of the earliest, most uh, challenging events and times of our lives. When we first go to school educational systems, and when we first go into the work arenas, we rely on our ability to become single-minded, focused, driven, uh, undeterred. And so any talk I give on this that gives the suggestion that we can somehow completely do without our the left hemisphere's ability to represent the world, create goals, and then create narratives that can take us to those goals and keep us driven, create a sense of drama, create a sense that everything revolves around this, and the left hemisphere also, because of the dopamine, creates the sense that everything in our lives will be solved if we can just get to our vacation, get to our new apartment, buy a car, uh, get a diploma, go back to school. The left hemisphere has a tendency with its spotlight attention to essentially overemphasize the rewards that will accrue from our projects and from our seeking control in life. There are drawbacks, though. And certainly, as many neuropsychologists, such as the great Ian McGilchrist, who writes about the, um, the, the fact that our culture systematically overemphasizes left hemispheric representational, removed abstract thinking at the expense of emotional, intuitive, felt, right hemispheric, connective, uh, awareness, which is actually far, in a way, smarter than our left hemispheres. Our right hemispheres actually um, depict the actual world with far greater detail. If you have a left hemispheric stroke, uh, 
you'll lose your optimism, you'll feel much more of your negative emotions, but you will see the world much clearer than when you are in your representational, abstract thinking mind. When you look at patients where they switch off and they can do this through certain kinds of drugs, they can switch off the left and right hemispheres. When the left hemisphere is working, if you ask somebody to draw something, they'll draw this like almost like stick figures. We have no actual sense or realistic uh, feeling of what the world is actually like. With the right hemisphere, people draw these very detailed representations of the world. The right hemisphere is constantly checking and seeing things as they are. It's not abstracting, representing the world in language or symbols. The drawbacks of the problem-solving, figuring it out uh, mindset is that the left hemisphere, the more we're in it, emphasizes self-reliance over connecting, relying on tribal connectivity, communal support. The left anterior cingulate has no circuits that reward us for emotionally bonding with others. That's the right hemisphere's anterior cingulate. The left actually rewards us for when people say nice things. So your left hemisphere is happy when somebody likes a post of yours or gives you a compliment on how you look, whereas your right hemisphere wants a look in the eye, a gentle touch, something that acknowledges the way you feel. So the more we are in problem solving, figuring it out, uh, working it out, trying to come up with weighing the pros and cons, writing our you know, to-do lists in abstract thought is to the degree that we are disconnecting with the felt emotional sensations that reward us for empathetic emotional connection. We are rewarding abstract logic at the expense of felt intuition. It uh, is deeply connected with addictions because the more we are in problem-solving mind, the more self-conscious we are and worried about what other people think about us rather than how connected they are emotionally with us. And when we are in abstract problem-solving, putting out fires, uh, uh, trying to figure it out, we're often also looking for ways to make it all stop. I think if you've ever been in one of those uh, situations in life where you can't stop thinking about something that's a challenge, how am I going to pay a bill? Should I stay in this job or leave this job? Should I stay in this relationship or leave this relationship? Should I stay in this city or leave this city? How can I figure it out? And when we're not employing intuition, emotional work, we, as Damasio shows in his wonderful books on what he calls somatic markers or feelings, we never come to a decision. We just get caught up in churning and churning and churning. To make a decision where there is not enough information or where there is no real right answer, we have to employ our emotional inputs. And to the degree that we try to logically solve life rather than employ intuition is to the degree that we will have obsessive ideation and eventually look towards self-numbing substances to switch off that 
churning, spiraling, spinning out mind. The more we rely on or become self-reliant on logic, figuring it out, not asking for either input or trusting intuition, is to the degree to which we will begin to find some of our emotions and our emotional experiences inconvenient. The left hemisphere is deeply implicated in many of the defense mechanisms that Anna Freud famously outlined in, 19, in her book in 1932, I believe it was. Defense mechanisms are essentially intellectual, focused uh, awareness that pulls attention away from feeling inconvenient emotions or from paying attention to inconvenient experiences that are emotional. For example, anxiety, insomnia, frustration, procrastination. All of these are emotional messages basically saying, I don't want to do this, or I don't want to do this the way you're doing it. But the problem-solving mind will experience all of those things as simply mistakes or somehow fail, personal failures, and it will not understand that these are very important emotional messages saying that we're moving into territories that make us feel frightened or overwhelmed. The Buddha noted that the, um, in life there are these things called the first noble truth, which he says are unavoidable, inevitable, universal, transpersonal, transhistorical shit that we all have to put up with. In life, he said, there is suffering. He didn't say life is suffering, but he said in life there's a lot of really inconvenient experiences. He gave a whole list. The list goes old age, sickness, death, separation and loss of the loved, being stuck with onerous people, not getting what we want frequently, pains in the body, painful emotions, and just being in a human body. All of these things, guess what? You got a human birth, you're going to get all of those. Then he goes on to say that if we learned how to be with, feel those emotions without taking and those pains without taking them personally, we wouldn't have the degree of suffering that we have in our lives. But the second noble truth is that the bulk of our suffering isn't from those really, really painful experiences, the old age, the sickness, the death, even the loss, the grieving, but it's from all of the thinking and problem-solving and resistance and scurrying and busyness to not experience what's inevitable. The second noble truth is that our suffering stems from taking all of life's inevitable shit personally, like it's being done to me, when in fact everybody who has ever lived has experienced abandonment, rejection, disappointment, multiple, multiple losses. And while they're all fucking unpleasant, it's our job 
if we want to not suffer needlessly, to instead of being caught up in trying to avoid what is already inevitable, but is to instead be with and feel and process the emotions so that we can actually learn, grow, hold our pain, and then move into the world and use our intuition rather than rely on escapist abstract logic all the time in our life. The Buddha in the Chaitana Sutta says, when one intends, controls, arranges, obsesses about maintaining influence over things that are beyond control, one's awareness is fixated and one's peace is continually put off into the future. Suffering instead appears. When one doesn't cling to their goals, when one learns to put aside that which they cannot control and let go of obsessions, the mind is released and stress and suffering are alleviated. So, in other words, the Buddha is saying we have to learn sometimes how to let it go, how to put aside trying to figure out and solve things that cannot be solved. Other people cannot be solved. I wish they could, but they can't. Other, sometimes there's no way to come up with a logical solution to life's big decisions. Sometimes we have to either trust in the wisdom of other people or we have to trust in our emotional, intuitive gut And if we spend too much of our lives shunting that aside, it will be very, very difficult when we need it the most to help us decide whether it's worthwhile moving deeper into a relationship, moving deeper into a project, or putting something aside. There is... Now, it's easy enough for the Buddha to say we've got to learn how to let go at times. Nothing sounds more Eastern and facile than just saying, let it go. It's one of the most irritating things to hear when somebody says, well, why don't you just let it go? Because they never bother to say how to do that. (laughs) That's my job to tell you. If I just stopped right here, (laughs) it would be a kind of a fucking bleak talk. I'd be like, okay, great. <laughs> but how the fuck do you do that? So there's a wonderful Buddhist analogy. It's actually Zen. I can't claim it on my team, the Theravadans. <laughs> but we're all part of the same kind of thing. Uh, in the Zen uh, tradition, there's a story of. Uh, <laughs> A Buddhist master, she's walking along the road and she encounters a starving tiger and the tiger chases her around and finally she reaches the edge of the cliff. And fortunately for her, there's this vine that hangs from the edge of the cliff. So she grabs onto the vine and lowers herself before the tiger can take a bite. She must have been pretty quick. And... um, So the master climbs to the very bottom of the vine, but unfortunately it turns out that the vine ends 
with still a hundred foot drop remaining above jagged rocks. So at this moment, she's dangling from the end of a vine above a hundred foot drop, and above her, a hungry tiger is roaming back and forth, waiting for her return. And if that doesn't make her day complete, two little mice scamper at this moment onto the vine, and for no reason other than to make this story more interesting, uh, start nibbling away at the vine. So clearly death is imminent, and at this very moment the Zen master sees a ripe strawberry uh, just beside her, growing from the side of the cliff, and in that moment she turns and she plucks the strawberry, she pops it into her mouth, and she smiles and she says aloud, what a delicious strawberry. And that's it. That's the story. So, what does that mean? Well, in, you don't have to be a genius to know that in that metaphor, uh, the situation is life itself. We are all heading towards death, and we are all constantly on the run from lots of uh, possible uh, challenges, obstacles, things that could make life very difficult. We are, as the Buddha said, caught between old age sickness and death. And so the only responsible thing to do is to be able, at times in life, to look around and to see in this very moment of our life, right here, right now, what is available to me? What do I have? How can I embrace my life as it is without being caught up in the problem-solving mind which always creates the story that there's something missing? Yes, sure, we could believe that, but if we keep putting off happiness and appreciation into the future, then we really are waiting until the mice fully chew away at the vine and we drop to the cliffs, the jagged rocks below. Part of this ability means if we wait until we're caught up in a drama, a fire we can't put out, a situation where the mind is spinning and we can't see what the right thing to do is, where we want to make a change in a relationship or a job or a situation in life, but at the same time we're filled with fear. If we haven't learned how to, throughout our lives, pause, stop, if we haven't during the times when we're not spiraling out, then it will be almost uh, too much to ask if we wait when we're caught up spinning out. So part of the, as uh, Buddhism is frequently known to say, our practice is to prepare us for the real painful, excruciating, difficult, challenging situations in life. If we don't take time at the end of the day before we go home, to stop the cycle of putting out fires at work or in whatever we do in our days and then go home to the consuming mind of Netflix, 
social media, exercise, whatever it is, if we don't have a space where we're not in that driven, future-oriented, problem-solving place, if we don't have a time where we stop and fully land in life, then it's very, very difficult to learn how to do that when we really are pressed up against uh, big challenges. We do have, besides meditation, and many people uh, find meditation to be very difficult because when we stop and we develop full internal awareness, a lot of the feelings that we've been running from become very painfully apparent. So self-soothing strategies are essentially behaviors that allow us to be present in life without getting caught up in abstract representational thought. Self-soothing are things that involve using our hands or engaging with the world, but have no goal to them or destination. For example, and I feel like a hypocrite saying this because I've never done this in my life, but it sounds good, gardening, right? Nobody ever gardens, I think, because they want to get to the end of gardening, right? I can't wait till I finish this. Boy, is this garden going to look fucking brilliant when I'm fucking just... I can't wait to get through this when I solve how to do my garden. They garden because they like the actual feeling, they tell me, of being with the dirt, you know, and the, the shovel and the dirt and the planting and the, the getting things on them and then watering and cutting and weeding and whatever. I have no clue what I'm talking about. But it's an activity that keeps you focused in the present, but there's no goal for the future. Yoga. Nobody does yoga to get to the... Well, I do yoga to get to the end, but you're not supposed to. You're supposed to do yoga because you like to be in the process, the flow of movement, feeling the body as it moves and breathes. Drawing. Playing an instrument. If you play an instrument to get to the end of the song, you're not doing it right. Any activity that is soothing but doesn't numb the feeling of the body so that you can be with and feel what's going on, but you're not trying to get out of this moment, which problem-solving, figuring it out, seeking control does. Seeking control constantly tells us that there's something wrong with my life right now that has to be fixed or solved, that right now I can't rest, I can't enjoy my life, I cannot be. So to get out of that, every day we have to have set experiences where we are just doing something that feels soothing, that does not have any intended goal. Two, we need to develop disclosure. The only way to switch on the right hemisphere and to reconnect and to begin to seek help with other people is to regularly not try to present the I've got it all solved, thank you very much, how's it going, Bill? Fine, 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 everything's fine, keeping it busy, yeah, it's all busy. We want to avoid that, like the plague. We want to have that group of what Dunbar calls the co-regulators or the B people, the people who help us work through our difficult emotions so that when we are facing 
challenges or difficulties where there are no solutions, instead of being stuck in the churning, we can turn and talk about the feeling itself and the experience itself. Insight, the practice of observing the arising and passing of internal feelings or Vipassana practice is also known, will eventually show us that every state of both suffering that comes from losing control of something and every state of success where we feel we've figured out and solved it all, they're all fleeting states and it's not worth getting caught up. The experience of impermanence really is a kick in the stomach that all the busyness, all the churning, all the trying to control other people, figure out things perfectly, do things perfectly, not make mistakes, all of that is a waste of time. Because whatever state you arrive at, guess what? It will last for a few minutes, maybe a day, and it'll be done. I'll give you an example. I bet that very, very few of you, if I said right now, think of the dramas that were keeping you caught up a year ago today. Last early May, what were you really worked up about? Many of you won't be able to, with any confidence, know for sure. Because guess what? By the fall, you replaced all those dramas with other dramas, and then by the winter there was a new set, and now you've got an entirely new set. And what we don't acknowledge or experience is that the results always are fleeting and not worth so often getting caught up in the churn. But the biggest, most useful tool of letting go is being able to feel what's beneath what the figuring out, solving, abstract logic is covering up. In psychology, we know that intellectualization, rationalization are all defense mechanisms that are essentially obscuring underlying feelings that are uncomfortable. When we are caught up in the seeking control mind state, it's because we do not want to feel vulnerable. We do not want to feel fear. We do not want to feel, at times, lack of power in our lives. And yet, the ability to let go of control and to feel vulnerable is what keeps the alcoholic sober, what allows us to make our lives simpler and clearer. The ability to be comfortable with not knowing, not being in control, not being on top of it all the time, is what actually allows us to finally achieve peace in our lives. So if we want to get there, we have to be able to actually be with the state of not being in the steering wheel all the time. So that's what this meditation is going to do. So find a really comfortable seated position. So first, try not to look like a Buddhist. <laughs> 
Try not to look like a meditator. Try to look like yourself in a comfortable seated position. The only real effort at this point to put in is just take uh, a sense of if your head is nicely balanced over your shoulders, not leaning in front or slouching in front, nor drifting too far back, but that there's an alignment from your shoulders to your neck to your head and that that could create a line down to the hips. And if you have a tendency to have your head slouch forward, gently tilt your head back a little like you're looking at a very tall building, and that will counteract that tendency for your head to drift in front of your body like you're looking at a laptop. And we either close our eyes or look down at the ground in front of us. Either is okay. The goal is to in practice to reduce the dominance of sight and awareness so that we can become aware instead of first internal sensations. That's how we reconnect with the emotional mind. So we'll take our normal three breaths to start the practice in unison. Take a full in-breath that fills up the lungs through your nose and lift up, if you like, your shoulders so that you're really trying to touch your ears with them and then hold and then breathe out and drop your shoulders in the most relaxed way like they weigh each two tons and then gently pull them back to open up your chest, make a nice open space for the breath to come in, and then take a next full in-breath and pull in your belly really taut so that your abdomen feels really flat. And then breathe out and soften. Relax the belly, soft, pliant, belly, and then for the third breath, we want to squinch the toes, squinch the buttocks, squinch the fists, and squinch all the muscles in the face, clench the jaw, clench the eyelids, everything tight, and then breathing out, unclenching the jaw, softening the micro muscles around the eyes. So take a survey of your body and just adjust anything that would make you feel more 
comfortable in this moment, if your clothes need adjusting, the way your legs are folded, if anything could use a little attention or care, and really have a sense of your comfort, your needs being addressed, So first we'll just start with a settling practice, settling the mind. And in traditional practice that simply involves holding an object in awareness, an ongoing object that's not something that requires a lot of effort. So, for example, the breath happens. It doesn't require too much effort. And all we need to do is simply find the sensations of breathing in and breathing out. If you use a breathing practice, just find the sensations of inhalation and exhalation and think one as you breathe in and then think two as you breathe out. Think three as you breathe in, four as you breathe out, and then arriving at five, on the next in-breath, start counting back down, four on the out, three on the in, two on the out. So we're counting from one to five and back down again. Another good practice to establish a settled mind is to simply listen to the sounds without adding any visuals to create a sense of what's creating the sounds. Just receive the sounds that are flowing into the room.
Another very simple practice is to visualize a very basic shape filled with a color, such as a yellow circle or blue square, etc. And very slowly begin to expand the shape and color until it subsumes all of awareness. Or lastly, you could just simply employ a meta practice a very simple phrase repeated as often as needed to keep oneself from being absconded by thoughts, taken away, kidnapped by our memories or fantasies or planning mind. A phrase such as, may I feel at peace, may all beings feel at peace. May I know ease, may all beings know ease. Feel invited to come up with your own phrase, so long as it denotes a spiritual rather than a material goal. If you do find that your mind has been hijacked, that's very, very normal. Nothing to add any frustration, impatience, or judgment about. You'll reap all the benefits of your practice, whether or not sometimes your mind gets pulled away. Just gently with a great deal of compassion, bring your awareness back to your object of attention, 
feeling good about your practice, appreciating all the <coughs> sensations that are available So at this point you can gently let go of whatever object you've been keeping in awareness. 
and bring to mind a time, a situation where you have found yourself caught up in what we could call the figuring it out, solving, trying to come up with the right way, the logical way, the a situation where you worry about doing it wrong. Perhaps some place in your life where you might even feel a little stuck. A family drama, work drama, work situation, relationship with roommates, a relationship issue. And just putting aside any temptation once again to get caught up in uh, figuring it out. And see if we can instead hold an image that suggests being powerless in this situation, not knowing. They're not being at this point, any way to control or come up with the right solution. Anything to activate in the body a feeling of vulnerability. See if we can connect with that feeling of fear, anxiety, worry, concern, lack of control. We're hanging from the vine. There's no way to go. There's no solution. And can we simply be with that experience? Can we be with the feeling? Can we be with the vulnerability, the lack of control that comes with being a human being? Can we be with not being able to control other people? Can we be with not being able to control aging, sickness, the body? Can we be with not being able to control outcomes, control relationships? A 
A great thinker once said that human beings spend their lives frightened of experiences they've already survived in their past. To be an adult means we've already gone through rejection, shame, loss, disappointment. We've already experienced times of not being able to have any influence over the people around us, even if they were causing harm to themselves. Sometimes what we are most trying to avoid we've already successfully been able to hold and be with in the past. If you don't feel any sense of vulnerability, bring to mind something that truly, you know, could happen. In fact, very well might happen. And just feel that feeling of letting go, of avoiding, and just being with.
So at this point, we're going to bring the meditation to close. <coughs> Before you open your eyes, it's always, one, a good idea to reflect on the virtue of your practice. If you have any meditation in your life, then you are developing a way to self-soothe, to diminish stress, to aid memory and other vital parts of our neural resources. And yet at the same time, meditation practices have been shown to reduce reactivity, which means we will be in less conflict in life. And also, your, any benefits of your practice don't require using up the world's resources. You truly are in no way harming any other being while you practice, nor are you harming the ecosystem upon which we depend. And there are very few endeavors in life that are so blameless and so beneficial, so it's worth acknowledging that, feeling good about your practice. When it's time to open up your eyes, first just open them up and look at the ground in front of you and set an intention to balance awareness between what you're feeling in your body and what you're seeing in the world around you and keep that embodied awareness going as much as possible as you move into the rest of the evening. <clears throat>